Welcome back. Welcome back. Guess what this is, Charles? What is this, Mike? This is civil discourse. And you know what? It's not a safe space. Well, are we sure it's not a safe space? Because some people have been telling us lately, it seems like an awfully safe space. Oh, well, wait, wait, wait till I hit you with what I'm going to talk about now. Okay. All right. All right. And you now. It's, it's going to be near and dear to your heart. And before everyone rolls their eyes out loud, uh, referring to a present I got over Christmas, uh, <laughs> I, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start off by saying, even though this isn't an education episode, it's going to start off sounding like one. So bear with me. So I just got back from the school I used to teach in, which, you know, my wife still teaches in. Yes. And there's a new teacher, first year teacher there. And she was in my classes in the school. So she's a former student and has told people for years that I was her favorite teacher. And uh, I just sat with her for a couple of hours uh, when I should have been home working, by the way, and gave her all the advice that new teachers need to hear, how not to take it personally, et cetera, et cetera. Um, there is a unique thing about the particular school we're talking about, though, because it it is designed specifically to help uh, inner city students succeed. And okay. so it's a very challenging environment to teach in for an experienced teacher, much less a first year teacher. And in the course of our conversation, I said, you'll be a better teacher than I was here. And she said, why? And I said, because you're from the neighborhood. Okay. So in this conversation, come to find out not only is she from the neighborhood, she said, of course, I still live in the neighborhood. I feel I have an obligation to return to the community who got me where I am. And that's really what I wanted to discuss with you. Okay. Is there an obligation for folks who come from lower income situations to go back to the neighborhood and help make the neighborhood better? Okay. So um, let's unpack some of that. Um, first of all, uh, you'll notice I, I've generously spared you the ageism jokes that uh, were piling up as you were talking in my room. <laughs> oh, believe me. I, I, I met a, uh, the guy who taught next door to me, whom you've heard me speak about many times in the past. And uh, before I talked to her and I said, yeah, the beard's a lot grayer. And he said, so is the head. And he pointed to his hair. <laughs> so anyway, uh, yeah, so we made our own ageism jokes. <laughs> anyway. So so there we are as far as that goes. Um, so here's the interesting question, because the 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 thing that comes to mind is is not a, so much an issue of the the neighborhood you come from if you are from the inner city or if you are from a lower uh, income community or whatever we want to uh, classify it as. But I think the the more general question is, do we owe our community at large a, a return on that which they have given us that has led to our success? Um, if we are successful, I suppose. Um, and, I would even take it another step in the consideration and say, do we owe the next generation? Oh, that's, that's a, that's a great question. That's a great and, question. And if we're talking about the next generation in general, then we are speaking about our wider community. So yes, it could be our individual school. It could be our individual uh, neighborhood. It could be our town which supported us. I know that I received a number of scholarships uh, and and uh, assistances from my hometown early on in my higher education uh, that were based on competition, speech writing, what have you, where the town, you know, gave a certain challenge, so to speak, but upon achieving it, then they rewarded with me with assistance towards taking those next steps. Um, and... You know, it doesn't really matter to what extent those specific things may have contributed to my sitting here with you today. But the fact of the matter is in the conglomeration of all of these different elements from the community, big C and little C, have certainly contributed to my being here and who I am and, and, and what I do and how I live. And in that way, I would say, yes, I think it is incumbent upon those of us who have uh, achieved or benefited in significant ways from the community to give back to the community in service to the next generation. 
Does that make sense? It, it makes perfect sense. So that begs the question that I'm getting ready to ask. And while you spared me the ageism jokes, I'm not going to spare you the joke I'm getting ready to make. <laughs> Did you go back to bug tussle and do something? I will say that in my case, there were many uh, opportunities that I did go back to my community, um, but I perceived that they were not necessarily interested mm. um, in what I had to offer, um, which sounds a little bit more judgy than I intended to. No, no. I think I think if we set aside any preconceived notions... Yeah. Um, and knowing your heart, I, I didn't even jump there. So, uh, <laughs> well, for our listeners who might think I'm a real a hole, uh, no, no, I, I knew what you meant, and I think I think it's important and uh, to point out that you came from a predominantly white community. You are a man of color or black man, as you prefer, and maybe that I'm not saying it did or didn't, but maybe that had a little bit to do with them not wanting anything back from you, so to speak. I well and and and, I, and nobody ever looked to me in the eye and said we don't want anything from you. I mean don't don't get me wrong. No, I knew I it's knew just that. when I looked at the culture of my home community and the developmental steps they've taken over the last what 20 30 years uh since I departed it um I didn't see a place that was right for me in that sense. Now having said that I moved and currently live in a community that in many ways is very much like the one I grew up in. And this community is a bit more affluent without right. question, but it's no less rural than the one I grew up in. Um, and I am, as we speak, working on various ways to uh, give to this community that I'm raising my child in again, paying forward to that next generation and knock on wood, those conversations have been more uh, positive uh, and, and, and promising, not necessarily signed, sealed, and delivered, but there is a conversation that is going forward. So with that in mind, I, to, to a degree, in, in certain ways, yes, would be my answer. Um, I, so, can think of, I can think of ways that I wish it was more so that. Right. No, no, I, I agree. But I, before we before we move on, I, and I'm sure we will, I, I'm thinking of this particular community that I live in. And, and when I started teaching here, we lived in a different county. And uh, I said, you know, we're both teachers for the city. We should probably live in the city. Uh, and now <laughs> we did not move to the neighborhood where I, we taught, um, but we did move uh, 10 miles up the road, so to speak. And this is a town of haves and have-nots. It's seriously polarized. Uh, Which is and, probably, you could describe almost most communities yeah, that way, I would think. It is. The middle-income neighborhoods like I live in, and you know my neighborhood, you've been here a few times, is a mixed neighborhood, mixed-race neighborhood, and, and uh, works very well. Uh, but, you know, you go down the river, you see lots of very affluent homes, uh, you get to the east end of the city, and it is, it is one of the poorer neighborhoods in Virginia. Um, poor urban neighborhoods. And so my, my, my young, uh, I'll call her my protege for lack of a better word, who's, who's teaching exactly the subject I taught her, by the way, which I thought was a lot of fun. Uh, but anyway, she felt it was imperative that, that folks who'd moved out of the low income into the middle income stay in that neighborhood, particularly because there has been no real improvement in that neighborhood in the 10 years since she left it. And that's really the issue. Is there an obligation on anyone's part to go back to their home community? And I heard what you said, but I'm going to push back a little on this. I, I'm uh, so directly answering that question. I would, <laughs> as with most questions, I would say it depends. Um, and I, and I think you have to look at the, the circumstances of both the individual we're talking about and their relationship to the community that we're talking about and the community itself. Um, you could argue that if the community has given a great deal to me and I have flourished because of it, but the community is doing great, 
then that which I have to offer may be better used in other communities that need it more, right? Yeah, no argument there. I agree with you 100%. Um, You could argue that to some degree, you know, again, everything sort of depends on the individual situation. There are circumstances where regardless of whether the community needs it or not, it's just not the right decision to move back to that community, depending on the circumstances of the individual vis-a-vis the community. Um, I guess what's interesting, and as you know, I always like to go to the broader picture. The real question you're asking, at the way I hear it at least, is do we who achieve at the contribution of our community, again, big C, have an obligation to give back period in some way, shape or form. And, you know, that's a question that we hear argued all the time, you know, whether it's in education, whether it's in, uh, you know, fiscal responsibility, civic duty, uh, you know, if I've made millions and billions of dollars, uh, should I not be giving back in some fashion to the next generation on a regular basis because of that, or a significant portion of that, which I benefited not only through hard work, but obviously uh, through the opportunities the community afforded me. Um, excuse me. So that starts to become a murkier situation because for some people, there's no question. Of course you do. And other right. questions say, hey, the, I worked hard. This is what I've earned. This is mine. And I shall do with it what I please. Maybe I'll give back. Maybe I won't. And I'll certainly decide to whom I give it back. Um, there's a lot to argue there. Well, you know, as a lover of freedom, I do think it's a personal choice. Uh, setting that aside, <sighs> obligation is an interesting word, and, and I, I'm 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 torn here. And I'm I'm not a black man; I'm a white man. But there has been there have been accusations lofted across the wall in within the black community that I'm privy to because of my former relationship with that community, uh, particularly this local one here meaning right here in my in my town, mm-hmm. that there's a brain drain going on and that the people who can get out go and the people who can't stay, so nothing ever improves. And it, it, it has... That's not unique to your community, by the of way. Course, of course, but but you know, it's what I see. And, and the other thing I, I noticed being a native of the Washington, D.C. area is once the white people moved in, uh, into neighborhoods that were historically black, uh, Yes, yes, the community improved, but the flavor of the community changed. And now the people who grew up there couldn't no longer afford to live there. And like, so... And that happens, especially in the cities right. uh, or the outskirts and, of cities. And, and the big word is, is the G word, gentrification. You know, mm-hmm. it, it gets so cheap that now young, professional, white and Asian families move in, buy the houses, fix them up, and drive the prices up, up, up. And nobody can live there anymore who's not affluent or let's just say upper middle income. Um, by the way, lots of beautiful homes on that side of the city, uh, which makes, should make it really right for that kind of thing to happen. Um, so I'm kind of, I'm struggling with this idea because this young lady was always a very principled person. I I've known her since she was 11, 12, and she's always been like this. So it was no shock for me to hear her say this, but I found her take interesting that she felt not just obligated she felt it was her duty to stay in the community and she lives no more than five blocks from where she grew up well first of all let's applaud her for for that sense of personal uh uh purpose and and contribution and appreciation um within her world i think that's extremely admirable um, and certainly the world is a fine place if many people feel that way. Do I think that I sh- there's some sense of guilt that people should have if they don't give back to their own specific community? I don't know that I would make that strong a statement. Um, but it's certainly something that I think is a reflection most of us should take a moment and think about. Um, I don't, you know, you've told me before what 
where you specifically grew up, but you've grown up in a number of different places over right. the course of your life. Right. So. I, I started off in a low middle income area. And as my family got more and more financially secure, uh, we moved. Yeah. Uh, we When I left the house, it was a middle middle income. And then my little brothers, who are your age, uh, grew up in an upper middle income home. And, and you've yeah. met my parents. You know, my dad's an engineer now, but he wasn't an engineer when I was born. He, and that was, again, that's not an atypical experience. A lot right. of times over the course of several generations of of family rearing, the affluence of the family increases. The circumstances of the younger children are different from the early right, ones. Right, right. And, and so, you know, it's it's part of what drove me towards education was this feeling that, hey, my dad and my family benefited from education. I, I probably should go pay something back personally. Uh, I wasn't moving back to Washington, D.C., so, uh, because I belong to the cocktail party, not the Republican or Democratic party, <laughs> another joke for about a Christmas present. Uh, but anyway, you know, it's, it's one of those things where I'm, I, I felt an obligation to a community. It didn't have to be mine. Uh, and this community just happened to reflect a lot of where I initially grew up as a little guy. Um, well, so, I, you said something there that, that struck me, even though it was a passive word, but the, the term my community. Um, and I don't think that we can indefinitely tie ourselves to one specific community throughout the course of our lives. My community has changed numerous times in, in, in my lifetime, as has yours. Right. You know, for, for a time, it was a military community that would not have had a geography attached to it, right? Right. It right. was about the people you were serving with. Um, I have lived in New England, I've lived on the West Coast, I've lived overseas, and at any one time, there was a sense of community, but the boundaries or the borders of that community, what might have defined them, would have changed significantly. Um, so I would say I felt a need to be a participant in that community, but now that my community has shifted, do I feel I need to go back to wherever um, and, and, you know, deal with things that I've moved on from? No, I really don't. Um, and in some cases, I could even argue that, yeah, I think that community could benefit, but it's just not the right place for me at this stage of my life. Um, so I don't know that I'm inclined to feel guilty or, or obligated about that. It's, it's, uh, and I'm laughing here a little bit because I, 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 I'm going to ask you the most insulting question in the world because believe it or not, Charles does not speak for all black people. Just wanted to put that out front. But as a black man, do you feel any obligation to, uh, fellow black folks? And that I, I'm, I'm, I mean, that is a sincere, honest question. That's not an insulting jerk off question. If people think that, please, that's not the way I intended it. Well, I mean, the short answer would be yes, but I think it, there's a context that has to be clear there. So let me ask you to what is the context that you're uh, you're seeking to illuminate? I think there's a, I, I've seen this happen more in the black community than, than other communities where how dare you as a black man make your money, leave your community and live with all those white people. And I've seen that accusation thrown out. You know, it was actually a critique of a comedian you and I both love in the eighties who's since had a fall from grace where he, you know, he was accused of raising his kids outside of quote, his community in Philadelphia. A and I find it interesting that one's skin color in America seems to determine the sense of obligation they're supposed to feel or we're supposed to feel. And I kind of find, I, I, all right, this is not a say, I find that infuriating. Well, I think that the, there, there's a more refined definition that we're looking at here. And unfortunately the definition is often tied to skin color. But what we're really talking about is people who are dealing with the same experience, challenges, and struggle that I am, there is a sense of community amongst those of us who are dealing with that struggle, defined in that way. And so within that sense of community, 
is there a shared experience that then gives uh, a sense of or, or should leave us with a sense of obligation to help others who may not have risen out of that experience or, or that struggle? And often in this country and probably most of the world in various ways, that struggle is indicative socially of the skin color that the community perceives you as. Obviously, there are a lot more shades of gray in there, but I'm speaking in generalities. So in the sense of the black experience, there is a struggle historically that people of color have experienced uh, in this country um, that gives us a sense of shared experience or community that then we say, okay, for those, and like the comedian you're speaking of, uh, who have managed to rise well above that struggle, should they not have a um, an obligation to help others like them uh, rise above it as well? Now we start. Well, okay, let's let's just go ahead and say yes, they should have that obligation. But does that obligation have to take the form of continuing to live in and only in that community? Well, that's called segregation. <laughs> it, it most so, certainly is. And, 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 by the and, way, and I would say no. <laughs> you know, just just to throw the, the, the gasoline on the fire, I think our society is much more segregated today than it was 50 years ago. It's just, it's no longer by color. It's by economics. And well, and, 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 you know, Martin Luther King had the, the last crusade he led before he was assassinated was a war on poverty. Right. I mean, he shifted the language of his discourse entirely towards a battle against poverty. Not that race was no longer a significant element, but he felt that the influence of poverty in many ways was even more tied to the struggles of race than the race itself um and that the two were were indicative of each other and so that argument is not a new one and it's certainly a legitimate one but i don't think you can dismiss the racial elements of uh poverty in in the country either the two are related and you can add a third spice into this mixture, which is, you know, the social perception, because you can have two groups of people who are equally poor, but in vintage American style, uh, the lighter skin version of that will still see themselves as I, I may be poor, but I'm at least I'm not black or I, or Asian or whatever it is. Or whatever. Right. Right. Yeah. And so even within that shared poverty experience, which you would think would bring people of whatever color together because they're in the same economic situation, that hasn't been the case um, at large. I'm sure there are plenty oh, of exceptions. Oh, no, no. We, we know this is, is true, and, and we see this in election cycles, and uh, we see that – I mean, it's so obvious that Saturday Night Live did a whole skit about this with uh, Tom Hanks playing the – Trump American who came from poverty uh, and on um, Black Jeopardy. I don't know if you've watched that or not. I think it's uh, one of the funniest sketches they've ever done in their history. But um, I do too. But the point of it was there's a lot of shared experience there. So, but it's uh, interesting because I did not interpret that sketch as being a statement on uh, poverty specifically. Um, culture, yes. And as I've already said, there is a certainly a connection that's often tied there, but that's not how I interpreted the background of Tom Hanks' character. Other well, maybe, than maybe my background made me bring my own biases to the to the sketch. Uh, so. yeah, I mean, no, he didn't strike me as a wealthy man. You know, he he, but certainly a, a blue collar, uh, middle, maybe even lower middle income, but not necessarily poor. I, I'll say it because I, I can. I, I The language he was using, the inflection of his voice indicated to me he was a redneck. Bottom line. Oh, I think that, that was absolutely <laughs> the case. But again, I don't necessarily associate redneck with 
impoverished. True, true story. And, and you and I know lots of rednecks who have plenty of money. And by the way, uh, folks, rednecks come in all colors. They don't have to be. <laughs> well, but I mean, we can turn on C-SPAN. You'll see all kinds of rednecks and other color uh, necks. <laughs> yes, yes. So um, no, I, I think, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting though. And I think you, you're, you're hitting on something that this, and you and I've talked about, I don't think we've talked about it in the podcast, but we've discussed this previously. There is a political advantage to keeping poor rural Americans against uh, each other against poor urban Americans. And they it's even to the point where there's a political advantage, keeping poor rural white Americans against poor rural black Americans. And it plays well. well. And, and, and it's not just black. I mean, we, we, we're speaking again in black and white terms, but you know, Hispanic is a major part of this. Of course, of course. Asian used to be, um, and you know, talk about not a safe space. I say the word Asian because I legitimately, and please feel free to write in, folks. I don't know what's the politically correct term anymore because Oriental is no longer that's no. that's considered offensive, and that's fine. But Asian to me is right up there with African American. Uh, there are Russians who are Asians. That's there true. are Mongolians who are Asians. Uh, and then there are, of course, Ch- Chinese and all sorts of other people who qualify as Asian. That Asian to me means nothing other than a continent. And I say the same thing with African-American. Charlize Theron and, and I are supposed to be African-Americans. <laughs> it's, it's, what it's, does that mean? <laughs> well, it means you're from Africa, right? Or your or your forebears okay. are from Africa. Well, uh, well, if that's the case, then we're all African Americans, uh, depending on how far back we want to go. So, to me, that that term is meaningless. And of course, this is a different podcast altogether, uh, or a different episode. But I I've always struggled with that. And which, so, when you said the other day uh, or earlier uh, today uh that i prefer black american as opposed to person of color i'm actually fine with person of color i'm fine with black to me uh i i even and here we go watch the letters be written i was okay with negro like if 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 malcolm x and 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 martin luther king could say negro i don't have a problem with that though i understand that socially it's a little close to that other word that people don't feel comfortable with so they kind of moved away from it but to me african-american I can't. I've lost count of the generations removed from Africa that that I sit here as. So, uh, uh, Barack Obama was an African American. His father was of Africa. He was raised in part, at least, in Africa. Uh, so, Charlize Theron, as I mentioned, shows uh, uh, what's his name? Elon Test- Musk. Elon, Elon Musk. Musk yes. These are African Americans, so to speak. And Dave Matthews, who was born in yeah. South Africa and raised in South Africa. It, so, again, that term means nothing. Well, it means nothing. <laughs> I, I think it's because folks think a preponderance of the folks from Africa have dark skin, so that must mean something. Well, hey, and then that may be, that may be true, but then what do you call Haitian Americans? <laughs> Haitian Americans. <laughs> That's fine, but when they're getting pulled over on the street, nobody looked at them as, "Oh, you're Haitian. That's okay." All right. <laughs> so, so I've got to link the the Tom Hanks bit from Saturday Night Live. I got to link the Smokey Robinson bit from a Deaf Comedy Jam talking about all the names he's been called through the years. Yes, it's uh, a good okay. one, by the way. Yeah, yeah. and now uh, I've got to link the In Living Color bit about Michael Jackson. Am I black or am I white? <laughs> <laughs> who, who, when the police arrest him, goes, "Oh, I must be black." <laughs> so, anyway, um, and all these, by the way, are are, are uh, for for our younger listeners are times in history where where these things were interesting. Uh, you know, well, smoking. and it still is. I mean, there's. I think one of the most poignant things that I, I'm reminded of daily is that you look at the the conversations we're having today, and you said it yourself. In many ways, we're more segregated today than we were in the '50s. I don't know that I would agree with the more part, but I would say absolutely Maybe as, as much, Maybe certainly as, as much. Yeah. yeah, it just I think the nature of that segregation is has shifted, um, for better or worse. I mean. Here's an interesting thing that may tie back to the the subject we're really talking about here today. There are many people within the black community that would argue that black communities, plural, were in in far better condition before the end of segregation. 
because black businesses and schools and other community organizations and structures were geared specifically towards the benefit of their own people. And so that, that finance, that, that social and civic responsibility, all of these elements went back into the community as an investment. And the minute people stopped going to Jim's barbershop and instead started going to Walmart, as an example, right. The money started leaving the black community and the investment both fiscal and otherwise started leaving the black community. And there began the end of the black community as we came to know it, which then over time led to people moving out of the community. Again, the, the fiscal uh, uh, separation um, between poor and successful. So a lot of people, of course, benefited from new jobs and in, in, in schools and education and, and opportunity that, the end of segregation brought about, but in a lot of ways there were businesses and whatnot that, that fell and collapsed because they lost that reinvestment from the community. Well, it's, it's, it's the Marcus Garvey line. You know, that was Marcus Garvey's position is the black community should uphold their own and, and uh, should invest in black businesses and uh, that black folks would be better off if they were their own separate community and, and didn't integrate or, or work with white folks uh, well it's it's interesting the history of of this debate again goes way back and elijah muhammad uh you know through the microphone of malcolm x preached to a loud extent that there should be complete separation of the races complete separation no no social interaction no business interaction no nothing and it's known today that that was that was the uh, nation of islam of course was that organization they received money from an organization that agreed with them 110 percent and wanted to support that cause they were called the ku klux klan right right (laughs) (laughs) and you know and the funny thing is is you know uh, marcus garvey died in 1940 i think he was born in the late 1800s yeah uh he he had this very strong position and there was a guy who said the same thing 30 years before he was uh, born, or 30, 40 years, and his name was Abraham Lincoln. He, Abraham Lincoln wanted to repatriate blacks to Africa. He did not think white and black Americans could live together. Uh, so, so folks on both sides have held what I think is pretty much an extreme position, by the way. Um, by the way, uh, we're not going to get into it on this particular episode, but there's a lot of uh, varying perceptions on what Abraham Lincoln thought about the races. Um, and that particular position, which I have read and heard before, there are a number of people who say that's not actually where he was. Um, and I probably should personally be more informed than I am on, on, on some of that, but there's a lot of debate as to where Abraham Lincoln really stood period. Well, there, there is, we, we can only read what he wrote and, and yeah. he did write that he wanted the American West to be a, a land for white men. Yeah. Which is no, he, he was not, he, he certainly did not believe in the equality of races by any no, stretch. No. And I think we can't agree on that much. And there are I, movies that, that herald his, uh, progressive thinking as being the motivation why he let, you know, he quote fought for the liberation of, of enslaved people. Well, that's not really where he was <laughs> real, real, real quickly real quickly he did support something called the corwin amendment to the constitution which would have enshrined slavery forever and, and uh in hopes of holding the union together. yes no he he was very open that you know while he didn't necessarily support slavery he was willing to put up with it if it kept the union together right so yeah uh but that's another episode for another time very much so very much uh, so. and and if we go down this 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 rabbit hole we'll never come back out but <laughs> but I did want to say the, the 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 position of reinvestment within the black community or within whatever community. It, this is an idea that's held across the spectrum. Uh, Walter Williams, who's considered a conservative black man, along with Thomas Sowell, have both said that black folks were better off before integration, not because integration brought freedom, which they both welcomed, but because they had to re- the community had to reinvest in itself. And Walt, I think it's Walt, one of the two of them wrote about the crisis in education in the inner city 
happened because uh, black men and women had nowhere to go for employment except black hospitals, black schools, black law firms, black businesses. Once the whole world opened up, they no longer had to teach in black schools and the quality of black schools went down. Uh, Well, and, and, and here's my issue. I don't disagree with the spirit of what, what he's saying there. The problem is that the statement is, again, pardon the pun, too black and white. <laughs> you, and, that's the third time, by the way. Yes, I'm counting here. <laughs> but it's, it's no less true. There are aspects by which we can measurably look and see where there were benefits and, and, and drawbacks to the pre and post uh, integrate, integrated societies. In some ways, and in significant ways, yes, that statement is true. There were uh, stronger elements maintained the Black community when the, the community, again, was invested in itself because it had no option. Those elements, in many ways, declined after integration. No argument. On the other hand, I'm not riding at the back of the bus today. I think my life is pretty good in that regard relative to what my father grew up in. I would say that is a benefit to integration that though it wasn't a smooth ride, it wasn't like one day everybody started singing Kumbaya. Uh, the, the, the long arc of progress uh, definitely went in the right direction in those kind of elements. And so I, I, the only reason I'm making a big issue of that is I think that you cannot just simply say black folks were better off before or, or whatever. There are absolutely ways in which things were better than, than the element. And I think education within the, uh, I struggle. I, I also don't like the, the separation of rural and urban because to me that it's indicative of, of a larger generality that I don't like, but Within the impoverished black community, yes, that wasn't necessarily the case. And in the example I've given many times, uh, my father grew up in a segregated black community of Houston, Texas, that uh, Jack Yates High specifically is considered one of the best schools uh, still to this day in the community. Um, But we had... They didn't have the newest computers. Nobody did. They didn't have the latest editions of books or the finest, uh, you know, material, this or that and the other. But they had dedicated, loyal teachers, committed parents and, and, and invested community that supported. Today, if you hear of a school that's failing, all you ever hear is, well, they're poor and they can't afford the new books and the new computers and the latest this and that. And I'm sorry. Education has nothing to do with having the latest technologies. That's a part of it. Right. But uh, the substance we're talking about is people who can, can't simply read, write, and count. That has nothing to do with a computer. <laughs> or it didn't for the last how many millennia of human beings. That has to do with a, a, a dedicated teacher, a dedicated student, and a dedicated community towards supporting the success of that pairing but that's me. I, I, I know. And before we get too far from uh, Thomas Sowell and Walter Williams, they were st- strictly speaking from economics. Yes. That's all they were talking about. They weren't talking about the social impacts or anything else. Yeah. Um, what I believe it's Walter Williams will point out is unemployment amongst black men was much lower than uh, black families were more intact back then. Um, an economic opportunity was better for black men back then than it was in the ensuing decades uh, after uh, the uh, Civil Rights Act was passed. And so um, I don't want to misstate what they said, so please don't misunderstand me. I, they weren't, and I'm really saying this for the listener, I know you already know this, but I don't want folks to think I'm, um, that they they wanted segregation to stay. No, I, I, though, and, and again, there's, there's a larger conversation here. I don't know that I would agree with that assessment. I mean, I'm sure there are all kinds of, of statistics and calculus in there, but I would also argue that the range of opportunity oh, was more limited. It was, it was. 
And uh, if you have a range, a limited range of opportunity, you uh, if for for the nature of the employment, you also have a limited range of opportunity for the compensation of that employment. And so, if you're talking about the mass, then that's one thing. But if you're talking about the individual opportunities, that absolutely expanded. And to me, again, there there are a lot a lot more shades of gray in this art in this conversation. Um, of course, that happened. Now, to look now you touched on something I thought was interesting, though, and and it reflects again to this community that I started this conversation about, and that's here in my my town. Mm-hmm. There was a school called Huntington High School. Mm-hmm. Uh, Huntington Ingalls was the uh, owners and founders of the shipyard. The school was built in the black community for the black community, and it was one of the finest high schools on the East Coast, bar none, mm-hmm. all black school. Um, it was a direct feeder into what was then called the Hampton, Hampton Institute, which is now Hampton University, which was one of the finest black, historically black colleges in, in, on the East Coast. And people would figure out ways to get their kids into Huntington High School by sending them to an auntie or a grandma or whomever, because they knew that it was that great a school. And so uh, the alumni of Huntington's since been closed. But the alumni of that school are so proud. They even publish their own history book and in the back have all their statistics proving that they were one of the finest high schools in the world. Uh, And that was, to your point, they were using second and third generation books that had come from white schools, but they were wiping the floor uh, academically with white students in the same city. So I, 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 I think you're, again, it's not right schools were getting second and third hand books. No, I mean, that's that's not under debate. We're we're not (laughs) arguing that. Neither of us are arguing that. But if you're using that as your excuse to not be able to have a strong foundation in basic principles of education, then I'll fight you tooth and nail to any day of the week. Any day of the week. And I hear that argument all the damn time, and it infuriates me because it is not about... Math is math. And I, <laughs> we, we, I laugh because my wife and I are constantly battling against the new math. Um, and I know we're not alone. And there are lots of people out there who think it's perfectly fine. And the methodologies of mathematics have changed many times over the course of human history. And all of that is fine and good. But I don't see the benefit of of a lot of the new approach to basic arithmetic um, or the timeline in which we are expecting children to grasp it. Um, and that's a whole nother conversation we should probably have. We, but... we, we should. <laughs> and, and I don't want to make this about education, but we keep changing and we keep dropping where we stand in the, in the, in the international rankings. So we might want to clue ourselves in on that one. And that's and 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 let's go back to when we were at the top of of the educational pyramid and look at what was uh, what were the the measurements of of achievement and success. And again, my father came from a segregated black school in the South. My mother came from a rural, though white, but a very poor farming community in the Midwest. And while they may not have been astrophysicists, uh, nonetheless, my father and many in his class went on to be very high achieving artists, business people, uh, politicians, and so on. They all knew how to read. They all knew how to write. They all knew how to count and maintained a functionality that we are seeing people come out of a whole range of schools today from, from wealthy to poor that still don't have those basic skills. And yeah, uh, no, no, and, and <laughs> no, and I get me this, on my soapbox. <laughs> I knew this conversation would go this way. And again, you know, we we were talking about obligations to communities. The one thing I keep reminding folks of, and you've heard me say this a million times, but our listeners may or may not have, there's an achievement gap between middle class and our middle income and low income. It, it's not arguable. There just is. There's a bigger achievement gap much bigger between middle income and wealthy Americans. Wealthy Americans have such an economic or such an educational advantage over everybody because of the quality of their schools, the quality of education they get. Well, okay. So even that gives me pause because while I don't think that statement is untrue, 
um, I, I still would boil it down further to the opportunity to succeed and have assistance, real material assistance in achieving those successes is greater in the higher income bracket because we are surrounded, and, and I say we as if I'm part of that. I'm not people. Uh, but <laughs> compared to low income, I guess I am. But uh, I think you and I both know what we're talking about when we right, say, right, right. okay, when my father's the when my father is the uh, owner operator and CEO of a major business and corporation, whether I passed my uh, exams in school or not, I'm going to still have a job waiting for me. Well, well you, but you know the old saw: you know how to make a small fortune, start with a big one. So uh, second generation, but no question, no <laughs> yeah. question, and that happens all the time. But the bottom line is, our statement was: are those opportunities there? And I think for a lot of the 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 lower two thirds, we'll call it, of our economic base, it's hard to even find those opportunities, even if you have PhDs, and you know exactly what I'm saying. Oh, I, I mean, I do. it's not I, about the, how high <laughs> the education was. Trying to find the opportunity to get in the door is a Five-letter word that starts with a B, my friends. <laughs> uh, I, I, and the struggle is real. The struggle is real. I, I, but when we to look at standardized test scores, and that's the only criteria I'm using. I'm not talking financial success. When we look at standardized test scores, it's not even close. It's not even close. While the gap between middle America and low-income America is closing and has been closing now for years, um, and, and in a way the trajectories are, are narrowing both ways. Uh, low, low income is going up and, and middle income is coming down on a slight incline or decline, I should say, slight decline. The gap from middle to upper is widening on standardized test scores. And Why do you think that is? And it's not because they have the newest edition of books. No. Why do you think that is? I think a lot of, the, it's a multitude of, of, of answers here. So bear with me. One, a lot of upper income kids go to private schools, flat out. They do. And, and private schools. Okay, can, pause they, there. I pause there. But what do private schools offer? Higher salaries for teachers so they get the best and brightest. Really? Because the private schools that I've looked at as a teacher, the salaries were not impressive. If, if you're talking Catholic school or a middle one that targets middle income, absolutely true. You and talk about I can. Well, no, I live where I live in Southern Connecticut. We have a plethora of, pri of very high-end private academies and schools. Same, same story there. And I would argue that not only, and I'm not saying they don't have the best and brightest, but if they do, it's not because of the salary. It, believe it me, it's not be because, because of the salary. Of the, it could be because of the climate as well. It's a much easier school to teach, and you're not dealing with the discipline issues. Uh, well, now, I that, would argue that I don't know. I was going to say I don't otherwise. know. Because but, pri privilege comes with its own disciplinary issues. But the, the, the interesting thing that I've always found curious is that in a private school, while the school itself can choose to, to require it, they are not legally obligated to hire teachers that are certified, nope. that are they're trained at the level that public schools require. I mean, there, there are any number of, of points of discord that are fascinating to me about why we think that if I pay $100,000 a year for my kid to go to school, uh, and we're not talking college, I'm talking about, you know, private prep school, high school or high school prep, or whatever, yeah. um, even elementary schools around here, a, a private elementary school, and I could name a couple off the top of my head here, are still anywhere from uh, forty to $80,000 a year for an elementary school. And yet they don't require specifically uh, teachers who are certified, who have uh, degrees in education, at least, uh, the salaries of those teachers are not any the, it better, in some cases even worse, than public school demands in this region. And yet there's a perception, and maybe it's a true perception, but I don't understand why, that uh, the education that will be perceived, received there is guaranteed to be better. Well, we know from standardized test score it is. So, so, so the question so becomes what's why. what's driving that? Why? Yeah. Now, it, when I was speaking of was not the local private school. I'm talking about the elite schools. Woodbury Forest is a high school here in Virginia. It's very elite, very bourgeois. 
and attracts uh, very high-income families to it. Uh, teachers there have a home they live in, along with their salary on campus. Um, so they're they're offering perks. Some teachers do, not all. Um, and, and in Woodbury Forest is just one example. There's several of those schools here in Virginia that have been around for two, three hundred years uh, that are teaching elite preparatory uh, high school students. Uh, so the other thing is is self-selection, of course. Uh, rich kids are going to those schools, right? And what are mom and dad going to do when they're academically struggling? They're going to hire a tutor. And, and now, which, you know, the lady on the East end of Newport news can't do for her kids. She can't afford it. And, and that doesn't hurt either. You know, private tutors, um, experiences, rich kids get more of a cultural experience than the middle income or poor kids do. I mean, look at the little guy in my house. Is he going to see a lot more of the world by the time he's 16 than my two older sons do did, you know, he will, you know, he will. No question. But I, I would, I would argue that that is not a contributing factor to success on a standardized test. Well, the to success as far as being a well-rounded global citizen. Yes. But that the fact that my kid, uh, now I'm about to say something that sounds very elitist. The fact that by the time he turned uh, three, he had 26 countries in his passport did not make him a math genius. No, it didn't. <laughs> and we, we know that because we discussed that when we were, we were up there uh, recently. No, I think, though, the other indicator, and, and this I know for a fact because it's in my research from my dissertation, the biggest indicator for success is the educational level of the mom. If mom is reading to her kids, if mom is sitting down at the table doing homework, if mom is able to do all that, the children will score better on standardized tests. So say that statement again. Is 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 what about the mom? It's the educational level of the mom. Now that's not talking, you know, degrees. That's simply talking about how educated is his mom. And, and you and I talked in our last episode. Education doesn't mean degrees. It no, but I would also argue that uh, I, I probably would not phrase it that way as much as I would say about the educational engagement of the parent. And the reason I say that is uh, an engaged, a parent who is engaged in the education of their kid, who is, is, is reading, is this and that, they don't have to have, uh, you know, in, in, to what you just said. They don't have to have PhDs and master's degrees no. themselves to do that. But if, obviously, if they can't read at all, then that's a problem. The, but there, if, there have been stories of, of illiterate men who their kid didn't figure out they were illiterate until many years later because every night he'd sit down and say, read this book to me. So yes. I've, I've heard this tale. Yeah, but, <laughs> so. but, but I, you know, without question, the, I think a huge portion of the contributing factors to the success of children in a household is how engaged are their parents in that child's education. And it's, it's interesting because it, you know, again, it, it doesn't matter. We had, we've had a shift in, I think a lot of the public discourse in this country about education from it is imperative that I give my children the opportunity to achieve and do and learn more than I did to, well, I didn't need the college education. What do you need it for? Oh, this is this. And, you know, we said we weren't going to make this about education. We were talking about obligations to communities. And, and we've but, that, done that. but that is that is an obligation to community. It's in an obligation to your family paying, as well. Paying, right? Well, <laughs> and paying it forward to the next generation, even if that's only in your homes. I, I, I think we've, we've hit on all, you know, if we haven't offended everybody by now, we haven't done our jobs. Uh, the problem is, of course, we're not arguing. <laughs> everybody wants us to argue for some reason. Um, I, I think you and I agree there is, a, there is, if not an obligation, we should all feel compelled to give something back to a community, whether it's the one you grew up in, the one you live in, or one you care about. It, it really shouldn't matter. Um, I, I think if all you're doing is the pursuit of economic success, I don't know that you're having a real impact on life in the community. Now, you may be having an impact because you're providing jobs and doing all that for your community, and, and I'm not going to argue that on this episode. Maybe that's a future conversation. Uh, but I do think there is 
something we should all be doing. Um, and well, I like your thoughts on that. It's again, you know, boiling it down to, to the root of things. If you're going to say, I need to give back to the community, I guess the question that I would ask is for what purpose? To what end? What, what is the thing we're trying to achieve? Because giving back for giving back's sake doesn't really amount to anything other than maybe feeling good about yourself. But if the purpose for giving back to the community is so that the community can work in better service to the next generation, then, you know, and, and that may be implied, but I think it's important to specify that, then working in service to the next generation can come in many forms and in many communities. And if, if you as a, an individual or if I as an individual feel that the best way to service the next generation for me is to service the community that serviced me, then that's awesome. But if my goal to give back to or, or, or to improve the opportunities for the next generation is better served by working over here in this other area, uh, or community or whatever you want to call it, then that's perfectly fine. I don't know that that you should have a, a, an absolute obligation to your own rooted community, so to speak. Um, but I do think there is something to feeling an obligation to the next generation and 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 giving back to the larger community when we have achieved a certain level of success because of that community. Um, and again, I see the word as community as being a very larger plane than just my hometown, even though that's certainly a legitimate aspect to the word. Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, there's a, there's a story that it's a cross-cultural story. I'm sure every, every culture has the story, but I'll tell the, the Jewish version that I heard when I was a kid, which is a rabbi was walking down the road and he comes upon an old guy planting an olive tree and the rabbi stops and says, hey, how many years is this going to take before you uh, see fruit on this tree? And the old man stops his work and looks up at him and says, it'll be 40 years and if the summers are good and I won't be around then. And uh, the rabbi says, well, why then are you planting the tree? And he says, I found a fruitful world because my grandfather's planted for me. So now I do the same for my children. And that's really what you're talking about. You're planting the seeds amongst youth so they can plant seeds amongst youth and generations beyond that ripple becomes a tidal wave. And so uh, I'm going to call this episode ripples, by the way, because <laughs> I, I taught a, I taught a young lady who is now teaching the next generation of students. And there was a bit of pride I walked away with when I, when I gave her a hug goodbye and, and left the school and apologized to my wife for spending no time with her <laughs> and said, you know, that is my legacy. And while she's not my daughter, she is one of my children, if that makes sense. No, and, and you should absolutely feel proud about that. Um, you know, we're coming to the end of this, this hour of chatting, but as you were speaking, you put me in mind of a wider perspective on this. And I think that the sentiment that we're exploring here of, of giving back and paying it forward, if you will, to the next generation, leaving the world a better place than, than we found it, um, if you will, I think that that covers a lot of ground, which often is at odds with itself when we start rubbing the, the political spectrum on. You know, one of the things that my tree hugging friends and I would uh, would argue is that we should leave the world environmentally a better place than we found it. Right. That's what um, that's. Yeah. I'd like my kid to have as clean, if not cleaner air to breathe and water to drink and so forth and food to eat and so forth. Um, but this becomes a very heated debate. Uh, in this regard. We're going to save this for another episode because everybody wants clean water and everybody wants clean air. I, I think to say that one side doesn't is, but we're going to no, say no, that. No, 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 <laughs> well, no, 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 no. I'm, 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 I want to be clear that I think the idea of giving back or, or paying it forward, I think that there are a lot of interesting elements that we would say in a general sense, absolutely. 
But when we start defining what that looks like, it becomes a very controversial uh, it, it does. It does, which is why we're holding off on that. Yeah. I think uh, the point you're making is true, how we think leaving, how one side or, or, or whatever side of the political spectrum, what they think makes the world better, may not jive with the other side of the political spectrum. Though, you and I both agree, everybody wants their kids to, to be more successful than they are. Everybody wants their kids to be better educated. Everybody wants their kids to have a better life than they have. And I think we should remember that when we have these discussions. Well, certainly I'll say I think most people do. Well, yeah, again, everybody is a blanket statement. Let's say those who don't want their kids to have a better life. I'm just going to refrain from commenting on those. So <laughs> it's, it's anyway, we are at, we are at the end of our hour here. And, and I want to thank you for letting me make this game day call to completely change the episode. I don't even know what we were going to talk about. Uh, I was prepared for, for one of two conversations. Uh, but we'll get to that uh, here. Oh, don't soon. worry. They're coming. They're coming. Yeah, they're coming. <laughs> but I did want to talk about this because this was a very impactful day for me. And um, I, I just I hope everyone keeps this this new teacher in your thoughts. Uh, she was telling me how hard it is. And I was sharing my experiences with her on my first year of teaching, which are all teachers will tell you they'll never forget their first year. It, it's just brutal. Uh, and so I kind of encouraged her and, and gave her all the good goodness that came from it. And told her, really, this year you're learning to command your classroom. Next year you're going to learn to uh, to, to d- deliver differentiated instruction. In the third year, you're really going to start to refine your school skills. So it's a three-year process. And uh, so thank you for letting me do the, the game day change. And Well, uh, and I, I think I can speak for, for obviously the two of us, but probably the vast majority of our listeners and anybody else, uh, to to this young lady to you and to all teachers, um, I think there, there, there is no question that you don't go into teaching if you don't have a sense of giving back and, and, and investing uh, towards the future. It's not a, a, a job for financial gain. It's not a job for, for uh, glory and, 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 and honor that will be rung down through the ages. It's a job of sacrifice and investment um, that's often grueling, but if we can work our way through the gruel, there's a great deal of reward there, or we hope there is at least. And it's for all of us to, to thank a teacher. Uh, there is no, no one of us in our lives who have not been affected by a teacher um, or a, a army of teachers in various forms, and uh, they are to be tremendously applauded and better paid as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And, 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 you know, I was sitting here as you were talking, thinking of the teachers that really impacted me and there've been so many, it's not one, it's many. And well, and, uh, and we meet teachers in every aspect of our lives. It's not course. just in schools, but uh, the schools are certainly uh, at the top of that list. Oh, well, I'm going to hold off on where my brain just went. Uh, I'm talking about a troubleshooting session on a, a Jeep that you and I had, but we won't go there. <laughs> so anyway, hey, uh, thank you again for this. And uh, you have some new people we need to thank. Uh, first, our listeners. I know we need to thank them for listening. And no, we we absolutely uh, are so grateful to all of you who tune in each week and tell your friends and write us uh, at civildiscoursetnss at gmail.com. That's this is not a safe space at gmail.com. Tell us about, uh, are you a teacher? Uh, is there a particular uh, teacher that you felt w- had made a lasting impact on you and your family? And if not in an educational way, uh, what are your thoughts about giving back to the community? Amen. Um, what What are your thoughts about paying it forward to the next generation in every aspect of, of life and society? And uh, can you think of an example where you wouldn't be where you were today if somebody hadn't made that contribution to your progress? Um, we want to thank Keith Zdrojevi, who uh, continues to guide and help and, and engineer us into success uh, Parker McNerney, who has been a, a new addition to our crew and uh, wonderfully uh, generous in giving us his skills and talent towards the production of this show. The Lazarus Trio. Uh, hey, by the way, I don't know if you know anybody uh, part of the Lazarus Trio. 
But uh, aren't we supposed to be doing something with some new music coming up soon? Yeah, I need to year? just uh, that that guy from the Lazarus Trio needs to sit down and 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 do his cuts and provide those to per her so that he can uh, give us new bumper music on each side. Uh, it's going to be from another song that's about World War II vets. I just have to figure out my best pieces in there to grab out of there. So yes, okay. new music for for episode two of season two. Which, by the way, came up in the podcasters as marked as season two, but episode 27. You didn't miss 26 episodes before. I'll fix that. So, <laughs> anyway. Well, I kind of like season two, episode 27. It kind of uh, sounds pretty glorious, doesn't it? <laughs> it, impli- it implied that we did 50 episodes, 50 some episodes. And uh, if only I'd had the old math, I could have given you the exact number. <laughs> anyway. um, uh, to my co-host, uh, Dr. Mike Conagher, thank you uh, always for your uh, insightful and, uh, and uh, well thought out, um, you know, what you do. We were just riffing here. Uh, and by the way, uh, I want to thank you as well. I, I feel comfortable asking you questions that uh, some folks would be afraid to ask. And I, I also appreciate that you know where my heart is. You know why I'm asking the question. And oftentimes I don't explain why until after you've already answered. So I, I appreciate you trusting me when I ask those jerk questions because you know my heart and you know I'm not trying to be a jerk. Except now. Now I'm being a jerk. But anyway. Well, I, I've just come to accept you for the jerk that you are. And that, Amen. That, uh, Amen. By the me. way, we're a pair of jerks. Y- <laughs> yes. There's a good movie about that, I think. Oh, um. dear. Oh, oh don't go. But, that movie can never be made today either. No. <laughs> so. Well, I think we, there's a podcast coming about the films that we can't make it. We, we wouldn't be able to make to, anymore. Blazing, Blazing Saddles, Saddles, people. Blazing Saddles. And, and the jerk. So, wait, I do have rhythm. Yes, no. and there it is. All right. And hey, uh, next week, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll catch you all next week. Absolutely. Absolutely.